Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that would find you and love you in any universe, even if you had hot dogs for fingers. I'm Alexandro. On today's show, Inaction Man sets out his plan of action. The King's Speech is on its way and is full of anti-green policies that Charlie sure to love. Plus, Trump is on the stand, Mike Pence is on his way out, Ron, Ron DeSantis is on his high heels, and Joe Biden just dodders on. With one year to go, we start off down the road to next year's presidential election. Let's meet the panel. First up, it's columnist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet, Marie LeConte. Welcome. Thank you. Marie, on Monday, Katie Hopkins and Tommy Robinson were reinstated to Twitter. How is Musk's digital town square looking nowadays? It's actually brilliant. We're all having a lovely time. I, and as, as a personal close friend of both Katie Hopkins and Tommy Robinson, I'm just really... So I thought I'd change it up because I think, you know, every time I come on this podcast, the host asks me, so Twitter, Marie, it's gone even worse. Explain. And, and uh, yeah, I just, I just got tired of being like, yes, it's awful. It used to be great and now it's terrible because all the fascists are there and Elon Musk is the most annoying man to ever live. So no, this time I'm going to be like, no, I, I, I think it's actually good. I am uh, just a b- big fan of fascism. Um, and, and it's specifically, I think, when it happens on the website where I get my news. Like, that's really where I want them. That's where you want. Um, yeah, yeah. Next, where else? Where else? So, um, but, yeah, on, on a brief, serious note, it has been quite interesting, actually, how... Because I, I, I went on to Blue Sky quite early on. And I would say the last few weeks mm. that it's kind of changed massively. And, uh, A, lots of people have joined, but also lots of people have actually started using it. Yeah. So, so I do think that, actually, Twitter is kind of disintegrating even quicker than I thought it would um, and people are kind of like people are now very much at the stage of I think jumping onto the lifeboats I think they've been looking at the lifeboats for a while mm. with increased concern uh, and now they're, they're actively sort of like you know walking over each other uh, yeah. to scramble onto the lifeboats so no it's I mean it, it, it's just appalling isn't it there, there's nothing else to say really about specifically Hopkins and Robinson kind of being reinstated there's yeah it, it, it is just dreadful and I think you know, will Twitter even still exist by this time next year? Like in, in, in you know, a, a form that's in any way recognisable? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing to say is that uh, now um, Katie Hopkins, with her blue tick, her mm. fascism is monetized. That That's a development <sighs> since last time oh, she was gonna on. Eat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, she'll get paid per click for being outrageous. <laughs> Next up, journalist, author, and extremely snazzy dresser, Seth Tevo. Hello, Seth. Hello. Um, I like to remember Jeremy Thorpe's advice to Liberal Party candidates in the 70s, which was to dress to the right and talk to the left. I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, Seth, the COVID inquiry had quite a big week last week. Uh, what's coming up this week? Well, we're at the tail end of um, covering the uh, the scientists, the civil servants, but uh, just as this is going out on Wednesday, we're going to be looking at Mark Sedwell, um, the first of, uh, well, the new phase which will be entering, because uh, we'll have Pretty Patel on later this week. Mm. And after a, about a week or so's break, when they come back on, I think it's the 20th, that's when you move to the next phase. And I think it was you who actually pointed out um, earlier this week that they seem to be following this pattern from uh, the previous phase of the inquiry, yeah. which is having done the civil servants, having done the scientists, they then move to the politicians. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> you know the, last, the well, last of the batting order. Well, it, it's very helpful to, to frame it firstly around facts from yeah. the experts, and then you can ask more meaningful questions when we get the Boris Johnsons. That's really interesting. Our guest this week is co-director of the Centre on US Politics at UCL, Julie Norman. Hello, Hello. Julie. <laughs> so thrilled to be in the same room as you, because um, we we have a long history of remote we recordings. We do, our virtual we? relationship. Um, Anthony Blinken has had a very busy few days speaking to every power broker in the Middle East willing to speak to him about the Israel-Hamas war with not very much to show for it. It's true. I think it's easy to look at his trip and see that, you know, he came out empty-handed or see it that way. With that said, I think this is still necessary for him to continue this. It's uh, 
whether like it or not, the U.S. is probably the actor with the most leverage with many um, other states in the region. And for short term, this is going to be huge for getting any kind of humanitarian pause, mm. for negotiating on hostages. Midterm, it's crucial for not having this conflict spread even further. And long term, it's really important for trying to identify an endgame for Gaza. And the U.S. is going to be one of the crucial voices in all of that. Mm. So, so it's basically the aphorism about diplomacy that it's... 364 days of failure followed by one day of success. Something like that. I mean, I I feel like this is going to be a very long slog and the U.S. um, is in a difficult spot, I think, right now. They're trying to thread a very difficult needle where it's going to be seen as too little, too late by most in the region and probably too much by Israel. But they're trying to walk that line right now. And it's vital not to give up on that process, basically. Tuesday, we'll see the very first state opening of Parliament in the reign of King Charles III. This will be Charlie's first King's speech since his coronation last year, although he did read the last one on behalf of his mater. Prime Minister Sunak has vowed to put the brakes on climate-saving policies and the government's legislative programme will include granting new licences for North Sea drilling and more pro-car promises, all eyes on lifelong environmentalist Charles. But is announcing your long-term ambitions when everyone thinks you have just months to go as a government, just a futile act of posturing. Marie, Sunak's first year was all about steadying the ship. So he basically gets one legislative session to make Mm. his mark. What we know so far of the program that will be announced seems precariously perched between short-term things I am doing for electoral advantage and long-term things I will probably never get to do. Mm. Do you have some sympathy for him? Is it a pretty impossible position? I don't know. Yes and no. So I, I, I think the odd thing is that, you know, and, and, and it's everyone in Westminster, but we forget the Conservatives have a very large majority at the moment in the Commons. You know, they, they, there's not been that big a majority in government for a very long time. Mm. Um, so if he just wanted to force through some stuff, he could. Um, but again, I think it's not just Rishi or Number 10. You know, everyone seems to forget that there's a very odd thing, I think, in Westminster. Everyone's like... Oh, yeah, no, it, it is a generation-defining majority, technically. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I think there's that odd psychological thing because we, we all know they're about to lose it. So it's a bit like, ah. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, so, yeah, so, A, I think, you know, I, I kind of lack sympathy a bit because if he really wanted to do stuff, he could because Labour could not stop him. Mm. And, you know, and you would need really large conservative rebellions as well for stuff not to pass. If you speak to backbench MPs, if you talk to kind of people who work uh, in and around Parliament, they've not been doing a lot for the past year. And, and I get that, again, there was a period, you know, period of time of steadying the ship, etc. But that doesn't mean they couldn't do anything. Mm. Um, and yet backbenchers are unbelievably bored. Like quite often the House just um, rises really early, um, you know, much earlier than it, than it would normally. It's a bit like, you know, fine, he doesn't have that much time left. But again, if he really wanted to yeah, do, yeah, stuff, yeah. He he, do stuff, he could just do it. Because there, there's nothing, going legislation-wise, if you look, there's kind of nothing going on. I guess the only counter-argument to that is that if we believe reports that about 20 letters have already gone into the... 1922 committee, he 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 only needs to piss off another 15 people and there's a sort of leadership election. I don't know, but he'd, he'd win. I think he'd win. a. Um, obviously, it would be a massive distraction to have a confidence vote. Um, between it would them and be the hilarious. But, but he would win. He would obviously win. And it, Theresa May won hers. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, so, so I, I do think he is just being timid. Like, there is space there for him to do stuff. In his little peppy video, I don't know if you saw it. I did. I did. It's very TikTok-y. Sunak insisted, what can a country achieve in 52 weeks? Mm. Watch this space. Is Is there anything trailed so far that you find quite exciting? And is there anything notable by its absence? I'm going to go heavy on the latter, I think, because actually I, I, I was not incredibly excited by anything. But I would say, well, I think what's missing, and even, you know, looking at this from a Tory perspective, what's missing is virtually even just one thing hoping to win back even a single voter or get, like, under 45. Mm. Um, so there's no, like, even stuff, you know, so, like, conversion therapy, the legislation on that has been kicked into the long grass again, like, again, 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 again. So that's you know, now definitely not going to happen before the election. You've got the renters bill as well, which has been watered down and actually will probably either not achieve much or will start achieving stuff in quite a long time. So it's not going to change anything. There's nothing significant on house building, nothing significant, you know, because obviously 
we did have was at the last budget, I think, some stuff on childcare, which is, you know, almost certainly not going to work. There's nothing trying to bolster that, trying to help parents in any way. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, so I think, you know, what, what's missing is even literally just the one thing trying to make, you know, the lives of people under 40 even vaguely more bearable. I mean, and I, I am biased, but still. Anyone's life more bearable, I would mm. I would say. Um, I'm trying to uh, find the, the actual thing that they said about conversion therapy because I found it sort of bitterly funny. Um, so the... the uh, line from the spokesperson um, was that they haven't found the right shape for the legislation yet. It's a um, bit like the wrong crisis. I mean, this is this is something that they announced five years ago, and also everyone agreed at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And they just they haven't found the right shape for it. Triangle. <laughs> um, <laughs> Seth, the, the polls haven't shifted in the months since he U-turned on net zero and scrapped HS2. If anything, they've gotten worse. The aggregate is back to a 20-point lead for Labour. Is this a process of attrition where we will eventually see a sudden big poll change? Or has he taken his big shot and failed? I mean, as you've sort of already indicated, I'm much more interested in these bigger trends than looking at individual polls as they jump up and down. Yeah. Actually, the trend is pretty much towards stability at the moment. Even if we were to see the kinds of huge swings in support of the government that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic when people were really supporting the Tories, um, and that was after a slight yeah. election, um, that alone wouldn't save the Conservative Party. Now, that's where they are. So I, I think, for example, when people are saying, oh, could we have a hung parliament, something like that, um, that's for the birds. So the question right now is, are we going to have a, a Labour government elected by a small skin of their teeth majority or with a huge landslide? Mm. Um, I, I don't think it's an achievable or winnable situation for the Tories. It's interesting to look at the long-term trend because what you get is basically Boris Johnson about 10, 12 points behind on average. Um, Liz Truss, 25. Mm -hmm. Rishi Sunak, 20. That's basically the deficit. Yeah. And I do wonder actually sometimes to those who say, oh, Boris Johnson could have won the next election. Uh -huh. <laughs> what would be going on with the COVID inquiry going on right now if that set of people were still in government, I think they might, the poll rating might have been lower than Sunex right now, genuinely. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, with people reading out these texts going, just let old people die. Mm. If, was it the death squad of the Treasury? Yes. <laughs> you enjoyed that. If, if you want a ballpark guess on polling, we're actually very much where the Conservatives were in 95, 96, just a year out or so from the 97 election. And so it doesn't take too much imagination to say the Tories may gain another 5%. Labour may lose another 5%. Mm. Oh, it's an election with 40% to 30%. Well, you know, give or take 5%, that's not a bad guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tory party chair Greg Hands has been on the offensive. Uh, he's always offensive, but particularly this week against Starmer, claiming that Starmer can't enforce collective responsibility. Is that, is that a fair criticism? And is it a wise one to bring up, considering Braverman was freelancing again this weekend by, you know, wanting to take tents away from... Homeless people? Yeah, I, I think, you know, <laughs> lack of discipline is a hallmark of British politics. I mean, this is really a lot of this is down to the Israel-Palestine issue. And it's it's a really difficult position for any British politician. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You can take the course of taking a very strong side. And the Conservative uh, viewpoint very much has been, as long as the Likud party is in power, they are 100% behind the government of Israel of the day. Jeremy Corbyn's position was 100% behind the Palestinian Authority. Starmer is doing something a bit more difficult, which is rather than having entrenched supporters and opponents, trying to take a slightly more nuanced, you know, pro-peace situation. And which is the Blinken line, actually. Yeah, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's the sort of, you know, we recognize your absolute right to defend yourselves, but it must be done within international law. 
and will try to nudge you basically away from the anger you're rightly feeling right now. But it's a very difficult position still to hold. I mean, not least because even advocating that, people will say, oh, you're pushing for both sidesism. You're saying that both sides are as bad as each other. And that's not the the line that he's Mm. pursuing. But um, part of this, I think, is down to, in politics, the difference between being and doing. And politicians love talking about doing. They love the emphasis on having a track record of getting things done. But actually, there's a huge amount of importance um, to being a, a sensible grown-up in the room, being yeah. somebody who's a, somebody who'll bring people together. And that's not a, an easy position to take. Yeah. And and what of Braverman's? Um, what, do you think it's a lifestyle choice when uh, people live in tents? I mean, it's 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 leadership jockeying, and they, you know we can all see it for what it is. I mean, I I was homeless for over a year during a difficult period of my life, and I can tell you that some people do choose to be in the street, but that's only because they find the available shelters even more intolerable in terms of living conditions. You know, so it's sort of sharing a room with, you know, seven other you know, men who make noise all night. Some people genuinely find it easier to just find a corner outside. And that's the only the only thing I've ever seen that, that makes it a choice. We, we are in a country where most people are two or three, not even bad decisions, just unfortunate things happening away from homelessness. Absolutely. And precarious. Because we're constantly people. encouraged to spend future income. Um, Julie, both Biden and the EU are spending big on green economic plan with sizable subsidies. The UK is an outlier here, backing away from such measures. But is there actually some sense in not entering a race against two giants? You know, would we be able to ever offer the sort of subsidies to compete? Yeah, I think there's some pragmatism and maybe not a whole lot of choice here either to some degree. I mean, I think, uh, as your listeners know, I think uh, the UK kind of spent all its uh, protectionist capital a little while ago. So I don't think they want to go any deeper into that. And also, as you said, you know, there's just uh, the US sunk over $300 billion, I think, into these uh, this plan and these subsidies. The UK just doesn't have the physical capacity to do that right now mm. to be able to compete in any kind of meaningful way. And I think many, um, you know, many in the, the Tories, I mean, the private sector see kind of this US-EU free market emerging thing as possibly best just kind of sit this one out, see what kind of technologies are going to be emerging and make the best of what's out there instead mm. of trying to get in this race. Yeah, if that assumes that they never get together, right? Indeed, they never yes. go because there are some conversations at the moment about sort of making a, a EU US joint regime on green stuff. Yes. And that would really be horrific for the UK. I think. Yes, and I would say at that point they would probably find a way in, it would probably be offered a way in. My understanding right, right. from the US perspective is they would be courting that as a way mostly to counter China on these and mm. so they would want to be building a sort of um green coalition and uh, having the UK as part of that at some point. There is also proposed legislation that dips its toe in tech regulation. Um, They're proposing an easing of safety around driverless vehicles, about which industry is largely happy, consumer bodies largely unhappy, and some interference with company security software updates, about which industry is very unhappy, with Meta threatening to withdraw several products. Because what they're saying is, if we have to wait on a Saturday evening for some civil servant to okay a security update that we consider critical, we would rather not offer WhatsApp rather than offer a WhatsApp with compromised security. This is seen as one of Sunak's specialist areas. So why is he getting a mixed reception. He, the, this is a bit he should be getting right. Yeah, it does seem that way, doesn't it? And I think in some degrees he's having different uh, different emphases that I think speak to different people with some of these. I mean, for driverless vehicles, this is very entrepreneurial. It's very much speaking to that idea of let's have less regulations. But I think when it comes to tech security, I think that's something that Sunak kind of prides himself on, as we've mm. seen this week, kind of leading on AI regulations and security or trying to position the UK that way and things like this as well. So if you're trying to match security uh, tech security with also free market entrepreneurs. Yeah. And those things are going to knock heads sometimes and probably please some people and uh, annoy other people. Yeah. Or please no one. <laughs> or please no one. That, that also yeah. is Yeah, I mean, move fast and break nothing <laughs> exactly. seems like quite a difficult <laughs> balance. Um, Marie, 
We heard rumours last month that Sunek was planning to replace Jeremy Hunt with Claire Coutinho. Is there anything in this speech that sheds any light of that? Have you heard any gossip? Is Hunt being somehow squeezed out via policy? Um, I don't think it's about policy at all, actually. So I think I think part of it is that Jeremy Hunt is not... Like, he's kind of the invisible chancellor, which I find quite odd, actually. I, I wrote... And I'm really not kind of, you know, slapping my own back here because I think it was a very obvious take, but about, what was it, you know, four months, I think, into the Sunak premiership, I wrote something saying... Where is Jeremy Hunt? Mm. Would he like to tell us, perhaps, you know, like what, what kind of <laughs> chancellor he is, what he plans to do? You know, just like, would he, or is, he, is he just, you know, kind of being like, no, th- no thank you? Um, and then I think he did something like, you know, precisely two interviews and then went back into the HMT bunker and was like, oh, okay, thank, thank you. But bye again, Jeremy. They um, sort of wheel him out every time there's a set of economic data. Mm. And if it's positive, he says, the plan is working. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's not positive, he says, this proves we must stick to the plan. Yeah. And then they sort of wheel him back in and it's like... No, exactly. So I think, you know, I, I sort of get the thing of... And also, you know, he was appointed because because Liz Trust, that's the end of the sentence. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, and he was appointed by Liz Trust, importantly, he, Yeah, but because I he? think... Because she had to be like, who's the most boring but broadly reassuring <laughs> person I can bring in? Um, and then the problem is everything happened so fast after that that Rishi Sunak couldn't possibly get rid of Jeremy Hunt because he'd been there for seven minutes himself. Um, but yeah, but, but you know, but that was never, I think it's not an obvious kind of combination. I would personally argue, not to Nike Starmer and Rachel Reeves, I think you've got to have someone who's got a bit more pizzazz than the other. So like, we, we have two teams which are quite pizzazzless. Um, <laughs> but, um, but so I think it's mostly that. But then, so what really annoyed me, I come about, you know, people pointing out last week, kind of, you know, Tory outriders, all three of them, saying, oh, well, you know, that will really annoy Labour, you know, first female chancellor, yet another thing the Labour Party won't get to have if Claire Coutinho gets it. And it's like, is that really, is that what we're doing now? Is it, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, I mean, you know, and Claire, like, but, you know, from all I've seen about her, like, is very clever. She's a former special advisor, has been a good MP, has been a good minister. But she's also been in but Parliament. But for five for, minutes. You know, exactly. Yeah. Uh, she's not been in Parliament for a very long time. Um, and I'm not convinced. I mean, I, I wasn't convinced that she was necessarily ready for Cabinet. So the Treasury. I know. The Chancellor. So, yeah, it just strikes me as a slightly weird move. But then Rishi, I think, and that's probably another discussion for another time. But I do think one of his problems, which every prime minister has had, I think, to an extent, where he's especially bad for it, is that he only trusts, I think, very few people and is kind of obsessed with mm. his people, the people he trusts. And that's that. And you can see that in number 10. You can see that in cabinet, etc. He just has his people. And Claire is one of his people. And that's that. Um, Seth, soon next off to India, uh, to cancer cricket and have some trade talks, I think. Last, uh, later this month. There's also the autumn statement probably coming up and, and a reshuffle too. That's been rumoured for a while. Um, are voters going to notice any of it? No. Nope. Or care? Not or really. No, no? Um, I, for the reasons Marie's given, Hunt really doesn't have much of a mandate to do terribly dramatic, exciting things. And we're getting to that stage in the parliament. I mean, they don't even have the time to introduce any major legislation. So we're looking at small administrative changes and small announcements here and there, which is why we're getting all this culture war stuff coming up, because there's nothing else left in the tin. Um, And when it comes to reshuffles, I mean, one of the problems Sunak has is he's got the John Major problem, which is you want to appoint cabinet ministers who won't upstage you. Because he's quite dull. <laughs> and so mm. it's sort of, you know, Hunt is actually the perfect chancellor. As Marie said. But yeah, Claire you know, as well, likewise. It, it, just people who will be there, be present, um, punctual. Mm. You know, the, these are the virtues that he's looking for. Um, and as for who they are, I mean, I have an obsessive anorak on these things, and I don't notice who half these people are. Now I have to pinch myself to remind myself that um, Oliver Dowden is our deputy prime minister. I know. It's uh, yeah. It's it an is. unpleasant surprise whenever you remember, isn't it? It's yes. like, oh, oh. But I mean, like, talk about pizzazzless. <laughs> <laughs> no pizzazz to be found in the land. <laughs> um, it, it, it's interesting. I would advance another theory as well that because every prime minister wants to appoint people who effectively don't have a huge amount of past under another prime minister, because of all the changes that have happened, you know, because mm. of the number of prime ministers yeah, four people had. are left. No, yes. seriously. No, no, but no, like, really who, to, to whom do you go mm. that is not tainted by either the Johnson era or the May era or the, the Truss 
I don't want to call it an era <laughs> or the trust moment. Um, you know, to whom do you go? There, there really aren't that many people mm. left. And all the creeps Just, as well. Terry's like, I mean, coffee seems clear, to but... survive like mm. a cockroach from one administration to the other. Grant Sharps, but it's just those uh, Grant two. Grant Sharps and Michael Gove all out live us all. Yeah, <laughs> but the, the response to in space no one can hear you scream is in the Conservative Party everybody has a past. <laughs> <laughs> um, Julie, Sunak interviewed Musk. Yes. On X last week, and I use the term interviewed very loosely. Um, fangirled <laughs> might, might, might be more appropriate. Why would a communications team allow the prime minister, one of the biggest economies in the world, a man with access to nuclear codes and a seat at the G7 table in the UN Security Council, to appear, to appear as a subordinate of a right-wing businessman? Well, pizzazzless seems to be the word of the day today. So I think that was probably the answer. They wanted to get some buzz and excitement around this. And right. I mean, and I will so say... So they see Musk as having pizzazz. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who'd be talking about whoever else he spoke to. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, you guys yeah. all kind of paying attention to the AI thing. And, um, and you know, I mean, I, I can feel the, like, the Musk hate coming through the microphones and whatnot. But I think whatever one thinks of his politics, like, he is, like... A world-changing entrepreneur sure, with the tech, sure. in the tech sector. So, um, so to have him there, you know, with Rishi, I think was was not completely ridiculous. But I think doing it on Twitter or on X uh, was was a little bit of a um, maybe a little bit over the top. So, but also to have him as the interviewer, that's the bit I'm really puzzled with to to have them in conversation but with maybe someone else be, asking the questions mm. or something like that. But to have Sunak, sort of quizzing Musk for his wisdom. That's the bit that seemed weird. Yeah, it was a curious dynamic and I could see I could see it playing out in a much uh, in a much more charismatic way, I think, with someone yeah. who was able to make it seem more like a conversation. But with Sunak it just it did feel almost like he was um, a, a gumshoe reporter trying to get the scoop and Or just interviewing for a job. Who knows? We'll find out. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Who is this week's gold stick and who is Black Rod? Marie, let's start with you. So, my hero of the week uh, is Dr. Tom Dolphin. Um, he is the junior doctor who was uh, part of the BMA and part of the strikes. And Lee Anderson, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, tweeted out a mail online uh, headline on Twitter which accused him of boasting about charging the NHS for a strike cover shift, which was not true. So Tom Dolphin was not striking that day. Yeah, and yeah, actually yeah. donated the fee, you know, from that shift to yeah, the yeah. BMA. And what I just really, really, really love is that, so Lee Anderson was made to apologise. Fine, but I feel like we're kind of used to that now. Um, most importantly, Lee Anderson was made to pay the same amount Tom Dolphin paid to the BMA. The strike <laughs> to the fund. Strike fund. Yeah, yeah. And that made me just so happy. Like, I just really, really enjoyed it. A nice, you know, nice little icing on a cake. Yeah. Um, so that's my hero. That must have been a hurtful check to write. I know. I know. It's always like eighteen hundred quid. Like it's not nothing. That's a strong entry. Well, who's your villain? Uh, my my villain actually is Nadine Dorries uh, because you know we've had days now of you know her, her book has been serialised with the Mail and the Mail on Sunday, and she's like, oh well, you know Westminster's Parliament is such a terrible place in the Conservative Party, and you know, and this MP is a rapist, and this MP kept was it like paedophilic um, content on his computer, and this and this and that, and it's a bit like, hang on. You knew all about all of this when you were a Conservative MP, including when you were, like, you know, a cabinet minister, and you decided to not do anything mm. about any of it. You decided to keep all of it so you could get, like, a nice cheque from the Mail and Mail on Sunday for your serialisation because you knew they'd only presumably buy it if you had some scoops in there. And, so, and, and I don't know, I feel like her tone of saying, you know, kind of, oh, well, you know, all of this is bad, all these people are bad. I'm like, again, you knew that and you chose to sit on that information for a long time just so you could get it out yourself and make money out of it? I, I, I don't know, yeah. Mm. Unless there's something I'm missing, I found that incredibly tasteless. Yeah. Seth, how about you? My hero of the week is Guardian journalist David Conn, who is very much the epitome of the kind of dogged journalist you get who's vindicated after they've had years of being threatened. Um, this goes back to the Michelle Monet case. Baroness Monet, um, he, he's the one who actually broke the story on this. 
her lawyers had repeatedly threatened to sue over any suggestion that she had any uh, connection whatsoever to this PPE firm. Turns out her lawyers have now confirmed that uh, her husband was both a major investor in uh, and indeed chaired one of the boards in charge of procuring and supplying to the um, British government PPE equipment. Mm. Um, so it turns out actually more and more of this is true and is confirmed. It raises some very serious questions to the lawyers because they've been acting on the basis of untrue instructions. And mm. the, the question as to at what stage will they have realised that will arise. Uh, meanwhile, if she's, they knew about it, of course. Well, because, uh, them, them, I mean, it's often the case that in a, in, in a law firm, there are Chinese walls between like the commercial division and yes, a division and, and that this, might handle And this is why I'm raising the yeah. question about at some stage it will have become a yeah, yeah. You know, whether it was yesterday or six months ago, we don't know. As a consequence of that, the government is currently suing her for £122 million over the um, the PPE equipment that was provided that was faulty. And there's a national crime investigation. Uh, sorry, there's a national crime agency investigation mm. uh, that's underway. What about your villain? Um, I think they're quite interesting villains. They, they finally charged the four alleged burglars who made off with a gold toilet from Blenheim Palace four years ago oh, yes. in 2019. Takes a lot of chutzpah to run off with a gold laugh at 5am, apparently. Yes. Um, yes, chutzpah. That's the word I was looking for, <laughs> not. Um, okay, how about you, Julie? Yeah, I have more of a pop culture one. We were talking before about the uh, the need for facilities breaks. And I've just learned that there's a cinema chain in the UK called View Cinemas that has reintroduced the intermission. So as someone who like hey. always needs bathroom break and always needs snack break, I am a huge fan of this. This is massively large, exciting like, news movies. to me. So, um, so yeah, I'm sure there's like a commercial like reason for it. But for me and my loving my breaks, I'm like very much in support of this. Bring back the intermission. Oh, maybe they'll bring back the... The sort of uh, um, the intermission music exactly, as well, because loads of yes, the, yes. Um, yes, that would be very Didn't exciting. Sir Martin Scorsese recently threatened with legal action or his film company. Um, because it's a, it's very controversial, I guess, for filmmakers to like cut a movie in half, and I can see that artistically to like not break the flow of it in a cinema. But other directors are starting to like think about actually like they use it to actually plan the movie like that. So it's almost like two acts with a set intermission. Yeah. I think Tarantino did that back at some point. But there's like a kind of oh, a, yes, you're right. an indie like do you know um, the Hateful like. Eight exactly has yes. a has a an in, interlude yes. in the middle with a sort of. Uh, nice, nicely photographed mountain range, yes. which was very in keeping with her style. Okay, and who's your villain? So again, a rather mundane one, but speaking of the the burglars, um, someone stole my socks out of my shoes when I was swimming the other day. So I know that's oh. a very small, um, a very small transgression, and I'm glad they left the shoes. But I just, I just had to laugh at it. It was just such a funny little crime, and I just hope my socks are out there having their best life as sock puppets <laughs> or something. So, um, but whoever this this petty thief is at the Y of you, I guess you, you like got stealing me, so. one sock would have been funnier. That is true. Yes, they could have done that or replaced um, them. Okay, so I have to make my decision. It's not an easy one today. I have to say a lot of worthwhile, but I have to give it to Tom Dolphin. <laughs> I do. I really because so just forcing that apology and that payment out of Lee Anderson. It's just <laughs> very, very, very funny. Um, and greatly appreciated, although View Cinemas introducing breaks is life-changing information. <laughs> and then uh, I think for villain, I have to give it to Julie's Sock Thieves. Yes. Because, <laughs> no, I mean, because, you know, it's those daily paper cats that reduce us to barbarians. <laughs> This would um, never have happened to Albert Einstein. He refused to wear socks, ever. <laughs> yes. Hey, maybe that's why. So... Uh, if you're out there and you happen to be least listening, <laughs> it's never too late to send them back. That's right. Wash them first. In exactly 364 days' time, as we record, the polls will open in the US presidential election. Joe Biden's approval rating is just 15%. Sky high by British standards, <laughs> where everyone is negative. <laughs> Compared to Donald Trump's 14%, the numerous criminal indictments, allies and lawyers deserting him and his own children forced to testify against him has done nothing to shift Trump's base, still smarting from what they view as Biden's fraudulent presidency. Julie, so a year out from the vote, 
Do you have a sense of how Americans are feeling of on either side just about the prospect of this thing coming up? Yeah, honestly, pretty despondent. I mean, no matter what side Americans are on, the majority are um, disappointed by this. And polls have shown this, that Democrats or Democrats and Republicans mm. alike are not looking forward to this rematch. Um, you know, for Biden, he just continues to kind of bleed uh, support even, uh, you know, from his own party. And, uh, you know, Trump, as we know, he's a known quantity and there's going to be a lot more revealed. But that just hasn't uh, that hasn't changed him keeping the base. But um, there's a lot of Republicans who would like to see someone different. And I think it's just going to be a pretty grim 12 months. And this may be one election where we see turnout drop just because there's uh, a lot of frustration, I think, with both candidates. Mm. Do you have a sense of who that, whom that might favor? Um, right now, it's looking like Trump has a bit of an edge, mm. and I think this will jockey back and forth over the next 12 months. You know, the latest polls we've seen is that he's actually pulling ahead of Biden a little bit, but again, that might move. Um, but there's there's just some intangibles that won't change. I mean, Biden's age continues to be probably his biggest liability, and that's not um, that's not going to change or, or, or move in the, the <laughs> right direction for him. It's going to move the wrong um, way. And Trump obviously will. His situation will change as the trials start and uh, you know, more comes out. But I feel like while many are counting on that as dropping him back, I think if anything, it might accelerate him among um, among some of his, his voters and supporters and mm. almost be his campaign. Like we were, as we were saying, Trump is about to take the stand for the first time, as we record actually, in one of the many legal battles he's facing. How important have they been in reviving his popularity, but also could they develop in a way that has the opposite effect? Or is it just baked in now that the more he gets into trouble, the more his supporters will love him. Yeah, I think the question is if there's kind of a, a max point of his supporters, yeah. because obviously his base is going to be with him regardless. The trials are just going to increase their enthusiasm. But the question as to if he can win over, say, independents, moderates, those really crucial votes in U.S. politics for mm. swing states as these trials get underway and as, you know, some at least get a bit more averse to him. Um, but again, we, we haven't seen that dynamic happening. And I think one thing we've learned with Trump is we for eight years now, we keep saying, oh, well, once everyone sees this, then they'll come to their senses. <laughs> yes. And that just has never happened. Um, and it's not like it's not like there's some big reveal that we're all waiting for. Like, all of this is way out in the open. We all saw January 6th. We've all seen the documents. Like, this is literally my next question. To come out. Absolutely. My next question, and I read it here. Why do you think events on the 6th of January just did not have the profound effect that everyone thought they would have. And analysts, even on the right of politics, thought this is some kind of milestone, some kind of turning point, and it just not. Yeah, it's it's such a good question because I think so many of us were very confused by that. And I think the main reason I can say is that the majority of Republican voters agreed with Trump that he lost the election. And so the fact that there was um, months of him saying that and then a big rally around that was not problematic to them. They maybe disagreed with the violence, some of the actions that they saw as some bad apples, some rogue mm. actors, but didn't put that firmly on Trump or on Republicans at large. And so once the um, impeachment trial started and the other trial start, uh, um, indictment started, it was this seen as, um, you know, it's seen as a witch hunt. And I think Trump just very savvily just took control of that narrative and was able to convince about half the country that he was a victim in all this rather mm. than a villain. Seth, how important is the age of the candidates? As uh, Julie mentioned, Biden will already break Reagan's record this term, and if elected for a second term, would be older than even Gladstone by the, by the end of his second term. But we are all living longer and mm. healthier lives. So you would expect these ages to, to, to go up. Is age a fair thing to bring up? I, I think health is a fair thing to bring up. Um, and obviously, 
increasing infirmity with age as a factor. So there yeah. is a legitimate public interest in that. Um, <clears throat> it's not a crude measurement by age simply because you get very healthy and very unhealthy people of different ages. I should point out John F. Kennedy was one of the, well, he was the youngest president elected to the presidency and his health was abysmal. I mean, um, he was on uppers and downers from various doctors at the time and, you know, literally flat on his back for mm. uh, parts of his presidency in pain. Um, and it's interesting that Trump actually was the oldest president uh, after Reagan. So he he exceeded Reagan's record. In fact, Trump and Hillary Clinton both would have exceeded Ronald Reagan's record. Um, 76 or something? Reagan was 69 when he was elected. and he. But uh, by the time he left, I think. Yeah, he was a few months shy of 77. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, Joe Biden has certainly broken that record. Biden is certainly slowing down. I think people who've watched Biden around for the last 40, 50 years in Congress mm. uh, pretty much reconciled yeah. that. Um, on the other hand, I'm a big fan of Biden's administration, I have to say. I think Biden has been one of the most proactive and consequential presidents. In terms of getting his legislation through, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with it, Joe Biden is up there with Ronald Reagan, you could argue. He's certainly up there with Barack Obama in his first term, not his second term, possibly even exceeds it in terms of achievements. And so part of this then goes to that classic question of deflection that you get when somebody asks, well, are you judging their administration or are you judging them personally? Yes. And in this environment, the vice president really starts to matter. You know, having a healthy vice president who could step in if required. Remember that um, the 17th Amendment, I think it is, it's not just the death, it's the incapacity of the president is the mm. issue. And it may well be that a president gets to a certain age or a certain level of infirmity and says, I'm willing to retire, you know, midterm, and that's not the end of the world. The question is, are they ready to set up an administration around them to do that? And actually, Donald Trump was advancing a lot of these arguments yeah, yeah, questions yeah. about his age being asked. I mean, it, it is interesting because I agree with you to, to a certain extent that for all his faux pas when he's talking off script and stuff like that, in terms of policy choices, I cannot think of something that Biden has done that I thought that that you you put your foot wrong on that one actually in terms of the policy choices he's made there, there are a couple of missteps around Afghanistan but yeah by and large sure, it's been you really know, effective solid yeah. really solid and which is kind of the opposite of Trump because Trump for all his confidence in the pronouncements the policy slate behind them was a disaster that he. Mm sort of vacillated wildly on practically every subject, domestic or foreign. Um, Julie, Americans famously vote with their pocketbook. The US is dealing with cost of living issues similar to the UK and other Western economies, but the economic indicators in, for the US are notably better. Like they are recovering visibly faster and yet the economy is where Biden is trailing Trump in every single opinion poll. Why is there this seeming disconnect between how people think Biden is doing and how he is actually doing? Yeah, it's so true. And to, to some of what we were just saying, like some of his policies have actually been um, quite notable. And unemployment is at one of its lowest rates in in, in years. Um, and as you know, inflation is is coming down and certainly looks better than it does uh, on on this side of the pond and whatnot. But the Perception does matter for a lot of people, and a lot of people are still feeling that crunch of inflation. They still feel it in their pocketbooks. They still see prices going up. Mm. So even though those of us kind of comparing UK, US are like, what are they complaining about? Like, you know, someone who's just seeing prices go up still thinks, okay, this isn't good. And I think moreover, again, Trump really commanded that narrative that he ran a good economy. Mm. He has pitched himself as this businessman who knows what he's doing, um, that, you know, keeps taxes low, gives like tax cuts, these kinds of things. So I think a lot of Americans that appeals to them, even those who are um, not MAGA and not caught up in the whole Trump, like Trumpy part of Trump, mm, mm. will vote on the economy and then what they perceive to be a more capable, um, uh, a more capable Trump in terms of his dealing with so that. So, if what we see in the figures begins to filter through to people's finances, you might see a quite a quick turnaround. Is that? 
I think a bit, yes. Yeah. And I, I imagine a lot of, like most elections, and it seems trite to say this now, but it, it does often come down to how the economy is doing at yeah. that time. Yeah. And I do think that will make a big difference in this election, especially in those swing states where it's a lot of states where, you know, the old industries and jobs have left. It's a places where people have felt a lot of the economic crunch and kind of this globalization kind of time. So how those specific states are feeling or seeing things, I think, will make and, a big difference. And is it, difference. in your experience, something on which the dice cast quite early. So we're seeing today, actually, a poll that has Trump ahead in five of the six battleground states. A year away from the election, is that quite solid? Or has it in the past been reversed quite easily in that last year? Oh, it's absolutely been reversed in the past. Uh, you know, Obama, I think, was down eight points around this time right, right. Uh, before his uh, second election and then obviously won that quite handily. Um, but I guess this election, it's, it is unlike anyone we've seen before mm. in that we know both of these individuals and mm. know them both as president. So there's not this sense of, oh, is there going to be something that comes out about Trump over the next while or something like that. Like, it's it'll be almost a referendum on, on Trump. Something else. Yeah, something <laughs> else. It's just, you know, we, we know them. We know how they govern. Um, we know all the scandals and baggage that we assume can be, like, unearthed by this point. So I don't think there'll be quite as much movement as some years, but world events, country events, the economy, all that will, will always shift the numbers in mm. some way. Marie, there was a general sense in 2020 that sanity had prevailed and the Biden victory would start a sort of wave of more conventional politics, at least, around mm. the world. And what is becoming clear now is that the populist right will is not a beast that we can vanquish just once. Mm. It It's a sort of Mike Myers of <laughs> politics. It will get up again and, and again and again. Here I am again. saying Frenchly to you, <laughs> really, we'd not notice in France at all. <laughs> no, but do progressives need to change their tactics? Do we need to see more of what's happening in Poland, for example, of these coalitions of people with slightly different agendas that are saying, okay, first things first, not that. Mm. Oh, God, I think it's a really complicated question. And I, I, I'm, but I'm not well, sure. That's I have why a... I asked it to you. You're <laughs> oh, very yeah. clever. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but, I mean, I mean, but the problem is, I think I, I'm not sure I have a set answer because I'm not sure there is a set answer um, in that, you know, I think in some countries, obviously, yeah, what, what, what does work, I think, is having that quite broad electoral coalition. But then in others, again, taking the example of France, I think that you know, doing that, we did that in France several times. Of mm. saying actually, in the in the second round, when uh, either Le Pen, you know, yeah. um, father or daughter, ended up there, of saying actually, you know, wherever else you stand, you know, on the kind of political spectrum, you've just got to vote for the other one. Is it really working? You know, Le Pen is still at the door now. Um, you know, and she's still, and then that's not really worked. And, you know, and we, we had, you know, we've now had obviously two terms of Macron and that's not really helped meaningfully. And I think she will almost certainly make the second round again this time. So I think, again, a coalition may work in some places, may not work in others. Um, I, I, I mean, do we mind Le Pen being runner up forever? Yeah, kind of. Well, I mean, provided she does never makes it to number one. Well, I'm... I'm Will she never make it to number one? I don't one? know. That's yeah. what I'm asking. I'm um, saying provided that it yeah. prevents her from getting to number one. I, nah. um, mm. I'm all, yeah, I'm, I'm not It's quite convinced. a high-stakes game, isn't it, it's it? It's also a bit like, you know, and I feel like you don't need to be a socialist to think that, you know, the only two available options being the centre-right or the hard-right are not, you know, that that's not an ideal so state of affairs. I think it? that's, you know, many, many people have other opinions. But, yeah, and as I was saying, I think I also have some, you know, some sympathy for, you know, some of the left-wingers who say actually... Politics as usual is not working. What you need is a radical government, yeah. you know, that, that kind of changes material conditions in a way that really matters, um, especially to the working class, etc. Um, but, you know, would that work everywhere? I'm not sure. So, so I think that I I think that narratively speaking, it is quite easy to say, OK, populism is going up everywhere. And I think that you can probably find some reasons why it's going on in lots of different countries at the same time. So, you know, the economy obviously having taken a massive hit over the, around the pandemic, you've got, I think, the internet more broadly, and that's a whole different chat. Mm, but I think mm. that's kind of changed politics in a really fundamental way on national level kind of everywhere. But at the same time, I think how you respond to that populism changes country by country and election by election, I think. So, I'm, yeah, so, so, yeah, that's a very long way of saying it probably depends on the country and on the election and the type of populism you're fighting as well. Bernie Sanders upset quite a lot of the UK left by coming out with basically Starmer's 
line yesterday that a ceasefire is impossible at this point. Humanitarian pauses are essential, that Israel has an absolute right to defend itself, but it must do so within the limits of international law. Does this put an end to the idea that Sanders is sort of American Corbyn or vice versa? Mm. Uh, do, do, we, do we tend to read across too much, basically, from, from politics in the mm. States to politics here and, and try to find proxies just to make them slightly mm. more understandable to us? Yes and no. So I think I always enjoyed and I can't remember who it is. If you're listening, do tell me because I know I'm stealing your gag here. Um, but yeah, like a, a mate once said, you know, Bernie Sanders in the UK would be a liberal Democrat. Like he's he's just not <laughs> <laughs> he's not that left wing by European standards. Like he is left wing by American standards, but not but not by ours. Um, the, and and, and I, I can't you know not think about it whenever I see him. Um, so, yeah, so I think, A, there's that thing where actually, you know, American politics, even pre-Trump was always, I think, further to the right and lots always, of issues yeah. naturally than, you know, British politics, French politics, etc. So, A, that's that thing. Um, but, yeah, but, but, but the other side, I think, is you can probably say that, you know, he is the American Corbyn in the sense that by American standards, he is left wing and, you know, and he, he is to the left of a lot of the Democrats, etc. So, I think I basically think those comparisons work as long as you always make sure to keep them in context. Mm. So, you know, in the same way that, you know, I can be a nine out of 10 in Westminster. If I go out with my fashion industry friends, I am suddenly a six out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) Context is everything. (laughs) Um, Seth, you recently traveled around the States, didn't you? You were doing a sort of mini tour. Um, Politically speaking, what struck you? What jumped out at you? I spent most of my time quite deliberately talking to conservative Republicans because I speak to liberal Democrats all the time. I mean, (laughs) we're in sort of constant dialogue and I'm, you know, in the echo chamber, as it were. But I was really quite keen to just understand where conservative Republicans are coming from right now, what they're feeling. And certainly there was a strong skewing to their sort of being establishment Republicans I was speaking to. And the reason I mention that is the widespread degree to which they openly say... Donald Trump is batshit. We know he's a problem. We know he's a loser. We know he loses elections for us and is a calamity and is insanity for the Republican Party. And because we're conservatives, because we're party minded, we do not want Donald Trump. But we are never saying a word without out in public. It is Mm. the big taboo at all costs to to confront that publicly. Um, And... It's one of these problems where they are so afraid of their base, they are so afraid of their own voters, it is the logical consequence of populism. The degree to which you rile up the mob, but then become a slave to that mob. control to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Julie, this sets me up uh, perfectly for my final question to you. Because another thing that is emerging from all the polling is that most Americans would actually prefer neither Trump nor Biden. Um, Most named Democrat candidates do better than Biden. Incredibly... An unnamed generic Democrat candidate does better than anyone. <laughs> sort of like, you know, just an imagined Democrat is plus nine points on the latest polls. Um, is this not a clue for both parties to maybe rethink? the person they're putting forward. Well, there's certainly a lot of rumblings, and I I would agree with Seth. I think many Republicans wish there was someone other than Trump and thought there would be, but just the the polls just show it's not going to be that Mm. way for them. For Democrats, I think there are some more vocal um, expressions that maybe Biden needs to rethink this. I don't see him doing that. Um, the the new polls that are out that do show this like, unnamed candidate excelling, I, I think, are interesting. But in reality, though, I think when people usually see who are some of the options, yeah. that doesn't usually... Um, sure, they, yeah. Right. And, and I think that's, I think Biden knows that also. That was one of the challenges people referred to the vice president before. There is not really a clear person to know who to pass the baton to. That's yes. not saying that the Democrats don't have a bench. They do. But that idea of trying to coalesce enough people from the left, from the center, all these things, the way Biden was able to do, I do think it would be tricky for a newcomer to be able to do that, you know, whether it's um, Gavin Newsom or, mm. um, you know, Gretchen Whitmer. There's lots of names that are thrown out, some who I think will probably be very strong candidates the next time around. I, I think especially this late in the game, that would be challenging, especially against a candidate like Trump. I mean, he's mm. just going to go for the jugular for whoever it so, is. So you don't think that because of the – there's a slight time 
disconnect, isn't there, between the Republican primaries, which begin and end slightly before the the Democrat ones. You don't think they're setting some kind of Trump, uh, Trump, some kind of <laughs> trap, so that the the Republicans are basically committed to Trump, and then at the last minute, the, the Biden goes, "Look, I'm getting on a bit. I'm going to leave the field to someone younger and more dynamic." Yeah, if he was going to do that, he will, I think, need to do it by the end of the right, calendar right. year, just for by the end of this year. Yes, yeah. for anyone else to be able to get on the ballots, to fundraise, to get a campaign together, mm, like mm. it would be set that person up for a very difficult road ahead against Trump if he waits much longer. Mm. Um, so what do you think are the possible surprises that might append the coming election? I mean, what are yes. there scenarios out there where you think if Trump goes to prison for the Georgia thing yes. that he can't pardon himself for. Or, yes. You know, Biden might be taken ill. Yes. Trump I, might be taken ill. Yeah, I think both of those. If we're, um, if we're looking at polls, I think we can assume both of them will be candidates. But health-wise, I think either one of them could maybe not be. But um, that would be one uh, black swan kind of thing. Obviously, if Trump is actually convicted and actually is behind bars, I think that would make a difference. But I don't see that as particularly likely, given all the legal challenges. The main uh, the main uh, wild cards, I think, will be third parties and third candidates. Mm. So um, we were expecting a couple different uh, um, uh, individuals as well as groups to be throwing their hats into the ring. Some already have. And uh, I think with the U.S. election so close and those states that are the swing states coming down to often just, you know, in the thousands of votes. If you Even third taking party, a couple of points. Exactly. That is right? going to be huge. So um, there's there's a group called the Labels that might field a candidate. Um, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is polling about 19 percent right now, which is um, quite strong for him pulling both left and right wing voters. So there's there's a lot of unknowns going into 2024. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dutton. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What bookshops, DIY stores or streaming services are we emptying our wallets into this week? Seth? I think it's very unfortunate that for the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who, the BBC has uploaded almost the entire 60-year back catalogue of Doctor Who episodes to iPlayer because I have much less free time now. <laughs> um, so that's your recommendation, I take it. Is that, it it's it's the good, the bad and the Point, ugly. <laughs> pointing newbie to an old-style episode that will get them hooked into the series. Spearhead from Space. Okay, very good. Marie, what? Oh, you look pained at the idea of spearhead from space. No, I, I'm, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very fond of, um, because my ex used to watch Doctor Who old episodes on UK Gold assiduously mm. every Alex, Sunday morning. And Alex, you got the wrong end of the stick here from my pained face. I too am, am rewatching Doctor Who. Oh, okay. All right. okay, all right. So Pyramids from like, Mars on. is one I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So the talking? Pyramids of Mars, that is a good oh, one, yeah. one I enjoyed. One. And there was another one with a lighthouse and a sort Horror of alien... Of fang rock. Yes, with a sort of alien craft that looked like a kitchen knife flying through. From the, the gothic period which of time. probably Baker. was a mm-hmm. kitchen knife. Um, no, okay. I'm rewatching Matt Smith era. Uh, he was my favourite doctor. Great. Oh, um, yeah. you're so young. It's <laughs> awful. He looks like so a sexy what, foot. Okay, so what's your escape route? Well, it was kind of going to be that. But I mean, it's, I, I'm going to be honest, I, I get quite bad uh, seasonal depression. So I think I'm at the moment kind of just watching Doctor Who and staring into my sad lamp like I'm a big moth. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's kind of all I'm up to, really. That's OK. Yeah. That's good. How about you, Julie? 
Yes, so I was convinced by friends to go see Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theater, and I'm sure most of your hardened listeners are not big musical fans, and my gang usually is not either. But I will say, if you just want a very different kind of theater experience, check this out. It's an immersive audience, so you are standing in the arena stage with the actors, and you are suddenly like walking down the street in New York City with the the action playing out around you, then in a nightclub, then in a ticker tape parade, and it ends with a big dance party, and, and you're just a part of the play and it's a, it's, I've never seen anything staged like this with buildings rising out of the ground next to you it's just uh, it's really fantastic the way they do this I never expected Guys and Dolls to be um, such an experience so it I, I really recommend it sounds Bridge very Theater. exciting yeah they did a very good um, job so I was going to um, recommend the uh, latest series of Upload um, simply because I, I really I'm very fond of it it has good heart it's sort of warm and fluffy it's by the people who did parks and rec okay. and, and it kind of has that same mm. vibe to it you know mm. that people are basically generally nice mm. which i kind of need in my life right Thank now you. but at the very last minute i have to say i read the iea report on <laughs> brexit so I'm g- going to recommend that as the most terrific piece of fiction <laughs> that I have read this year. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Marie. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Thank you very much. And many thanks to our guest, Julie Norman. Thank you so much. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now? See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Marie Leconte and Seth Tavoff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones, Eliza Davis-Beard, and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.